You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. This episode is sponsored by Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partner, Olio Acres Farrier Supply. I've come up to Myers Co, which is the Agricultural College uh, near Preston, uh, which is uh, associated with the University of Central Lancashire, where I uh, studied for and received my PhD. So I've come up here to have a look at a demonstration of Workman Black and taken the opportunity to catch up with uh, my old boss, Dr. Sarah Hobbs, and uh, really uh, continue discussing some of the things, some of the projects that I took part in in the past. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Uh, One thing I have to say is if uh, some dogs suddenly start barking, we are quite close to the kennels here, so so don't worry, we're, we're not being attacked by some pack. Okay, what was your first experience of horses then, Sarah? Well, the one that I can't remember really, actually it was a donkey. Apparently, um, my parents took me to Blackpool and I had a ride on a donkey on the beach when I was very young. Um, and the thing that, that sticks out the most to my mum about that experience was that I wouldn't get off. Um, and so that was probably my first experience of riding um, a, a donkey and then following that I, I went to riding school for many years we had a local riding school and every Saturday morning first thing in the morning uh, we went out there and stayed all day and brushed horses and mucked out and had a lesson and then we were always the last ones home and in the winter time my sister remembers standing in the, at the top of the muck heap trying to keep warm so yeah, so, so yes, I rode, I rode from sort of about six years old regularly at the riding school. Uh, it wasn't until I got to about 14 where I'd managed to persuade my parents to buy me a pony. Um, but you came, so you didn't come from a horsey family? You no, came from not a, really, no, no. No. So before your academic career started, well, I know you had at least one job with horses, but was it through horses that you worked initially? Uh, Yes, I worked a lot. I left school and only really wanted to ever work with horses. Um, And one of the jobs that sticks out in particular, um, I worked for AJ Richards um, on his estate where he had his own personal trainer and we had some of the horses that were going in and out of training from some of the bigger yards, uh, such as Clive Britton's and Andre Andre Farb's. Um, And so it depended, um, on the whole, some of those horses were sort of recovering from injury, but some of them were actually in training with the personal trainer that he had, Cliff Austin. And I know we found out that at least one horse I remembered, although you didn't ride him, was there at the time, and that was Bold Arrangement. Bold Arrangement. They they had a couple of horses actually by Bold Arrangement on the yard um, that were recovering from, from various injuries. Yeah, and I... He, I plated him to come second in the Kentucky Derby. I'd love to say I plated the winner, but I think that's still the horse that's done best in, in the Kentucky Derby. So, so although we didn't know it, there was a tenuous link there. Yes. And we're talking 35 or 30 years ago. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, it will be something, <laughs> something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so then you... Um, you went to university as a mature student and yeah. studied engineering? 
Yeah, that's right. Um, that, there's quite a long story to that, really, because um, I had, uh, when I got to about 28, I had a farrier friend um, who I'd known for a long time, um, and I decided that I really had to find myself um, a career that was going to allow me to then have my own horse, because I'd realised that actually um, in the jobs that I'd had working with horses, um, that I was never going to be rich. <laughs> so, well, that's uh, it. not that's that I'm rich I, now, of course. <laughs> all, I told all my daughters that, that, get a good job and then you can buy a horse, yeah. not the other way around. Don't get a job with horses. And mm-hmm. Anyway, so you, you carried... So, so, yeah, so my farrier friend had sort of got me interested and for a while I thought maybe that was a vocation that I ought to try and, uh, you know, I sort of maybe train for to become a farrier. So I first went to Blackpool and the Fowl College, a, a local college to us, and did a welding course um, over 12 months and actually got quite interested in carrying on academically. Um, but at the time I didn't have A-levels, so I took a, a foundation course for a year, which got me onto a degree course. And I chose mechanical engineering really because um, I, was, I was always quite good at maths when I was a youngster. Um, and it seemed to be, I was never artistic and I thought, well, actually I need to stay in the, in the hard science type of area. So, so I carried on and did a mechanical engineering degree. I did very well actually because I applied myself so much more as a mature student um, and came out with a first class honours and, uh, and I won a few awards as well which was quite nice um, through the IMACE. Um, and then nearly immediately that I'd graduated I, um, I was, there was a job came up at the university um, for a sports biomechanist uh, lecturer and I applied for that and got the job. So there was a couple of months in between um, through transitioning from a mechanical engineering student uh, into a, a sports biomechanics lecturer. And so you, but, so you got that job at Bachelor of Science level, or had you by then got a Master's? Uh, no, no, no. I had a, a, what's called a, a BN Johns, so a Bachelor of Engineering degree. Um, and so no, I hadn't got a Master's at that point in time. Okay, so then you start to work towards that. I, I actually was, well there were two things that I had to do. One was a teaching qualification, um, which took me a couple of years to obtain. And then after about a year, I was asked to then go straight into a PhD part-time whilst I was lecturing full-time, which is, is quite ta- taxing to say the least. It's a lot of work. You don't have to, you don't have to convince me that part-time <laughs> PhDs while you're working full-time. <laughs> And difficult. So I know your PhD was on the hoof, wasn't it? It was, yes. Radial stressors. Yes, yeah. So can you explain to us what radial stressors are and how you set about measuring them? Well, there's a story behind this because there was um, a master student at the time who was a farrier that was studying at the university. He was interested in white Lyme disease. And he was uh, removing... Um, a sort of a, a, a small amount of hoof wall material to then analyse. From a live horse? Yes. Yeah. And one of his um, supervisory team had suggested that maybe uh, it would be quite a good idea to sort of put some instrumentation in the hole that was left and, and take some measurements because at the time we only really theoretically um, could predict the hoof strain uh, through the hoof wall thickness. 
So this was the sort of the, the basis for the start of my PhD. A lot of the PhD work was, des was designing the instrumentation that would actually go into the hoof wall to be able to measure the radial strain, which, which did take a considerable amount of time, um, and, and there are sort of quite a lot of issues surrounding that and to be able to measure radial strain. However, after two years, perhaps, of, of developing instrumentation and having some help from some of our technicians at the university at the time, we developed some really nice little instruments that would fit. Uh, we had to develop a method of, of drilling a hole, and this, this was in cadaver hooves, that would allow us to use an interference fit so that the surrounding hoof wall was allowing um, the plug that we created and, and took the measurements from uh, to actually measure what was really happening through the hoof wall thickness. And I think probably the most interesting part of that work was uh, of the cadavers that we collected and took measurements from, what we were expecting to find, which you might predict in a normal horse, that we would find tensile strain through the hoof wall, because of course you expect to see compression in other directions, and therefore you know the, 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 the material would essentially need to expand in, in some directions, so you might expect to see that. Uh, but in two cases, two of the hooves that we collected um, had chronic laminitis, and in those cases, we actually, at the inner gauge that we had, so we had one uh, very close to the, the laminae themselves, and we measured compression at those sites, which, kind of, which was a really important finding because I think it, it showed us very much the case that a, a laminitic hoof, particularly one uh, with chronic laminitis, the mechanics can change completely within the hoof wall, and that's obviously going to ha have an effect on um, changes in, in hoof shape, for instance, and also the mechanics uh, of the internal structures of the foot. Well, that's, I was thinking there as you were describing this to me that your engineering by then background must have come in as help to create these jigs. And I think I saw that your jig, I mean, a lot of them just load vertically, don't they? But you developed one where the, it would, it would uh, compress the leg or the foot at an angle as if the, the hoof's coming to the ground and also as the body weight comes over the hoof. So it wasn't just a complete vertical uh, system, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct and that, that took a lot of... Uh, it, it, an engineer built that for me, it's an absolutely fantastic piece of kit, very, very heavy and very over-engineered, but yes, we could set it up so you could change the medial lateral angle and you could change the dorsal palmar angle and therefore load the hoof differently. Because people are still using various jigs and testing the hoof, which is great, but I always thought one of the problems for a start is that the tendons aren't operating and we know the lower leg has you know, just four simple tendons, but we don't quite know how, uh, should we say, how uh, the whole system works with loading, movement, takeoff, and so you still get a simplistic result, really. Nevertheless, you do get a result and you do find things. So you, you got through your PhD and you stayed at the University of Central Lancashire. Yeah, that's, that's correct. <laughs> so you stayed there. And now, of course, from my point of view, and probably just about everybody listening here, all we think about is the hoof and the horse. But more of your time was taken up with, uh, should we say, human sports physiology, wasn't it, and, and studying that than the horse? 
it, it, there's a split really. I mean, I, I still teach now, I do teach still sports biomechanics. Yeah. Um, and those general, that's generally to sport and exercise science students and strength and conditioning students. Uh, so that's the human side. And, and some of the studies we do relate to the rider rather than the horse. So we, we're doing some work at the moment um, with the FAI um, for paradressage and at the moment we're looking at, at determinants of performance in dressage which very much involves the rider or the athlete if you like uh, the, the rider athlete more than the horse so so yes I do I do work in human biomechanics as well um, but quite a lot of my research is still grounded in, in relation to equine biomechanics. So would it be fair to say that you're taking the skills that are used in, in human biomechanics and applying them in the equine field. That's absolutely correct, yes. And what tends to happen uh, is that the human world is usually some way, some, some distance ahead of the equine world in terms of their skills and abilities uh, to collect and analyse data. Sometimes um, it's because it, it, it's sort of it, it practically easier to collect that data, and other times it's just the, the amount of research in in human biomechanics areas that sort of in advance of, of what we know in the in in the equine world at the time but obviously uh, for us to be able to understand what's going on in the human world it does help us then to apply that uh, and perhaps advance the equine world a little bit further yeah i i went in, um, in the early part of my phd i traveled over to utrecht twice actually uh, to see the work you were doing there and that was quite complex wasn't it because you had a pressure mat on top of a force plate with 11 cameras, I think, uh, infrared. Uh, I think, no, we had eight cameras in okay. that, eight cameras in that particular And, and all this is going on simultaneously so that you can put the, put the data together. So it took an extraordinary amount of organising. I don't think I was much help. I think occasionally I pushed a pony off to get it started. But, but I was struck by the fact um, you know how how difficult it is to collect the data because these horses had to hit the pressure mat didn't they mm -hmm. yeah. and i remember you had one pony you probably still have nightmares about it it took 135 passes to get the data you needed and that was just that was just one so do you still have any association with utrecht yes very much so actually from that particular study uh, we produced three different articles um, all of which I think were very interesting because that was basically to do with uh, horses with uneven feet yeah. um, and by that I'm, I'm sort of defining that through looking at the difference in the dorsal hoof wall angle and in the first study we looked at the loading patterns in the forelimbs and also looked at um, the, 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 the amount that the fetlock displaced which gave us a good idea of the stiffness within, within the left and right limbs which was really useful. So, so in other words, the fetlock drops further on one limb than the other? Yes. Okay. Yes. So this is, this is what um, Wimback, who, who discusses it in detail in many different places, um, talks as a, a mechanical lameness rather than a, an actual lameness, because when you look at the force data, there, there are actually slight differences in the vertical loading patterns. So the, the, the hoof with the flatter dorsal, dorsal wall angle tends to have a slightly higher peak force um, than the hoof that's more upright. 
But what you can also see, and it's more pronounced in some horses than others, is that the hoof with the, the flatter hoof will angle, the fetlock will displace or drop a little bit further, um, suggesting that there is a, a mechanical difference uh, in, the, in the limb structures themselves. Um, and this is something that we also saw in the data that it, essentially that, that limb's um, suspensory system is what you might call a bit, perhaps you might call it slacker or a little bit more compliant, whereas the limb with the more upright hoof tends to be stiffer. And so that was, that was an interesting finding from that data. We also produced um, a, a, a centre of pressure study from that. Um, so Sandra Nowalarts looked at how the centre of pressure changes yeah. and the patterns that you see um, in, the, in the different horses that we tested. And then the third study from that, which we published fairly recently, we included the hind limbs and looked at the hind limb forces as well, which is, is quite interesting in relation to possibly sort of secondary issues. Well, we all get accused, don't we, of, of treating the horse as if it's a two, two-legged animal, and there's probably not enough been done on the hind end. I would say that's what pushes them over the fence and pushes them over the winning line. And yet, I, I'm as guilty as that. You know, all my studies were the front end. And I suppose the argument for that is that that's where more things go wrong, but, but we're all guilty of that, of front end. So I'm glad you've done uh, hind-end studies. So can you tell me, what is your role at, at uh, UCLan now? Well, uh, the, now my title is I'm a reader in equine and human biomechanics, which, as we've kind of described yeah. already, uh, involves mainly teaching, although there is some research as well, um, human biomechanics, um, but also a lot of research surrounding equine biomechanics. I have quite a lot of quite a lot of other responsibilities apart from teaching. Um, I kind of lead our research around the world with other groups. We just talked about Utrecht, and we're, we're doing further work with them at the moment. And then I also lead uh, what's called a unit of assessment for the research assessment assessment exercise by Research England. Um, so, I, so I look after sport, leisure and tourism at the moment, which is an interesting job, uh, <laughs> to say quite demanding at times. Uh, I lead an impact case study and our impact case study involves uh, the work that we've done on surfaces, uh, the work that we've mm. done together yeah. uh, in relation to the development of foals and foals hooves, uh, and also the work that I do with um, Professor Hilary Clayton primarily in relation to um, some of the um, demands for dressage horses in performing high-level movements. What do you do in your spare time? <laughs> uh, well, I ride. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Still don't get away from the horses. But OK, I'm going to ask you three quick-fire questions. Okay. Thoroughbred or warm blood? Oh, that's so tricky. I, I love thoroughbreds. Uh, I have a feeling my own horse, who's 18 hands, probably has a bit of warm blood in him. So can I, can I actually say both there? That's terrible. Chestnut <laughs> or grey? Chestnut. That's because your horse is a chestnut? Yeah. yeah, that's what I thought. Shod or unshod? Uh, all my horses have been shod, but unshod, I think there are definitely uh, advantages to having horses unshod, which, it, which you can read in the literature, if yeah. they don't have to be shod. Um, well, when you're going around that cross-country course, do you feel safe with a barefoot horse? Uh, I've never ridden a barefoot horse around a cross-country well, course. Well, don't do it. That's why you're still here and healthy. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yes, all of my horses are generally shod, uh, so I suppose I would have to go with shod there. 
Thank goodness for that. <laughs> I don't want to be put out of work yet. All right, let's get back to the science. So tell us about some of your most important findings. Okay, well we talked about um, the work from my PhD, my own PhD already. I think there are one or two that I think are, are quite important. Um, the work that we've done with Utrecht in just the recent study, uh, where we were looking at the hindling forces as well as the falling forces, we know quite a lot about the falling forces already in relation to uneven feet and, and how they vary. But in the hind limbs, one of the really important findings um, was that in the uneven footed horses, whether they had a higher left or a right foot, what they tended to do, to do was produce more lateral force in the left hind limb. And it was fairly consistent across horses. Uh, there were obvious exceptions, but when you measured the group, you found this larger lateral force in the left hind limb. Now, whether that relates to a secondary potential issue um, because of either the positioning of their hind limb relative to the central mass, a twisting of the pelvis, or something along those lines, we don't know yet. But just laterality. Well, potentially, yes. Yeah. Potentially, you could say, well, it's from the side that you lead them from. Well, so it's... that's an effect as well, potentially. Um, so we, we can't uncover the, the cause. But we have found an effect, if you like, that, um, uh, that this actually does seem to occur in these horses and it's more pronounced in these horses compared to um, horses that have even feet. And from the definition, that's, that's a, no more of a difference than one and a half degrees. So, so it could well be that there is, a, there is um, that particular loading pattern is potentially having a secondary issue that we, we need to obviously investigate further. So that's one. I think another one from the surfaces work that I've done, which goes back to the Olympics work that I did, was when we did a lot of testing um, in a surface for the Olympics which had a, a drainage layer. And when we test a, a wax sand and fibre surface or a sand and fibre surface with a binder or just a sand and fibre surface on its own, one of the interesting things there was that with the mechanical hoof tester that we use, the LBST, um, with that drainage layer underneath, you could only ever reach a certain magnitude of force. Uh, so the reaction from the ground had a limit and we think it was because of the, the subsurface layer of this drainage layer. And why is that important? Well, I think it's important in relation to the design of surfaces that where you can have this layer that, um, that's a sub-base layer that reduces the peak force or regulates it to a certain amount, um, then it means that your horse is potentially never going to experience such high loads, for instance, when they're landing from jumps. So that was an important finding. And then the other one, which again is in a very recent paper, and this is work that I've done with um, uh, Professor Clayton, relates to dressage horses. And we've looked at sort of diagonal um, gates of dressage horses. So in this case, from Piaf through Passage, through collected trot to extended trot. And we've looked at um, what's called collisional losses. So the amount of energy loss from performing that movement. And actually, it's really in Piaf that you see that as, as you go from a Piaf that's slightly moving forwards to a Piaf where the horses are, are not moving, yeah. so they're on the spot, which is what they're supposed to be when they're um, performing at a Grand Prix high level, then the losses are, are huge. 
um, they rise very, very quickly, which means that you're losing a lot of energy during those movements, during the hooves landing on the ground, in which case that has to be replaced in some yeah. way, which makes it much more difficult, if you like, or, or um, will require the horses to input a lot more energy whilst they're performing that movement. And I think that's another very important finding. Okay. All right, so in general, I know it's a very general question, Sarah, but where do you think science is heading, equine science, from a point of view of locomotion? You and I are not interested in reproduction and medicine, so, but locomotion, where do you think it's heading? Uh, I think, actually, this is probably changes in technology that are moving us forwards um, quite quickly. We've advanced quite a lot in recent years because of things like Bluetooth and so on. Um, and wireless types of technologies and miniaturization of equipment and sensors and so on. Um, I mean, we've already seen sort of quite a lot of work in relation to lameness assessments um, and being able to quantify lameness um, a lot more easily from some of those pieces of equipment. And I think that that is something that will happen um, and it will help us to be able to make better clinical decisions, perhaps make some practical decisions in terms of um, cases where you might want to um, shoe a horse slightly differently, but you'd want to look at before and after. And if you can quantify that, it might actually help us a little bit in terms of being able to treat better or apply better rehabilitation and so on, because we're able to track horses a lot more in a lot more detail at the time rather than sort of you know having to wait to process the data later on yeah well i think even in in my time and my far smaller experience uh, some of the equipment has been quite cumbersome in the past if we can call it that and, and probably has more of an influence on the foot and locomotion than than you know to, in other words it influences our study but so yeah there's, there's some wonderful uh, little gizmos and of course we're going to look at one later today very soon, yes. yeah very yeah. soon all right deep philosophical question what do you think is the greatest hurdle that people have to overcome oh, it's so difficult this question i think we'll just have to ignore in life because that actually might be too hard to manage <laughs> for this particular uh session but maybe if we put it into the context of of um uh, doing a PhD, for instance, or something like that. that I remember saying to you a long time ago about how much a, 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 doing the scientific work to do a PhD will actually have an effect on you, and it does, it does yeah, change you in I'll the end. I agree with that. Um, and so some of the hurdles along the way are quite important. But I think at the end of the day, completing the thesis, it takes not only a lot of dedication and time, but also the ability to be able to analyse and investigate data to a great deal of depth and, and read and philosophise about what other people have written and what they've found and so on. And I think the, the hurdle there is, is not only just finding the time to do that, but also having the patience and dedication to sit down and actually spend the time looking at what other people have done so that's really, it's avoiding the question. No, no, some, you've said, and, and do you know, I always tell people the one thing, well, I learnt many things doing the PhD, 
but was I learned to mull over. So I think that's what you're saying. Mm. Instead of saying, oh, surely you can read something and make a decision. Well, some things you have to just take your time thinking over, mm. thinking it through. Because if you make a quick decision, you probably make the wrong decision, don't you? Mm-hmm. Now, just finally, just to finish on, how do we encourage more farriers into equine science studies? Hmm. I think it's great if we do encourage farriers into equine studies. I think, okay, so from a, an impact perspective, so from the perspective of how science influences practice, which is eventually what we're trying to achieve in yeah. a good way, obviously, in the, if you take a, a scientist who perhaps isn't a practitioner and they do a study that relates to um, the hoof in some way, then it may well be that what the work that they've done is a little bit abstract from how you might apply that practically, um, in which case it can then take quite a lot of years for any of that information to filter through and become useful. If we can influence farriers who already have some of those practical questions that need answering to come forwards and get involved in scientific studies, it may well be that the application of those studies are far easier to embed into practices and improve than um, sort of shoeing and trimming and so on. Well, you know that the number of papers that I've read that I thought it didn't need a farrier as the lead author, but it, if they'd have had a farrier on the team, they would have spotted some obvious glitches and probably um, got more information out of the paper. And, and so I think that's what you're saying. So, so we need farriers. They don't have to be doing a master's or a PhD, but we do need them helping people who are studying locomotion, the digit, the hoof. And then we, I, I think we'll get less of those... Um, well, misunderstandings, or we'll extract more out of any study if we get that. I hope so, yes, it would be nice to think that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is some very... We were talking this morning about the fact that the, some of the very basic questions still need answering, and we still need empirical evidence to show that actually trimming or shoeing affects horses in, 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 in these ways, kind yeah. of thing. And so, and we still don't have a lot of evidence to be able to, to, to quantify how certain types of trimming or shoeing affects horses, whether that's sort of standing or during motion. Um, so, so those types of questions, it would be great if we can get farriers involved in either, either like you say, either assisting in studies or, or actually conducting the studies yeah. um, as a student. Either way, I think it, it, it's very useful. Well, we are getting more now, so that's the mm-hmm. optimistic news, and we hope it continues. And, of course, here at Myers Co., where there is still a degree course running, and um, that degree is given by the University of Central Lancashire. So I hope that carries on. And um, I'd like to thank you, Sarah, for your time. Thank you especially for being my Director of Studies, and uh, that must have been quite a strain and getting me through the PhD, so thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. 
To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com and for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.